You've tuned in to Columbia Calling, your first stop for everything you want to know about Columbia. How and where to invest, where to visit. From the Pacific to the Caribbean, the Andes Mountains to the Amazon jungle, Columbia has a slice of everything. Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering. Here's your host, the journalist and hotelier, Richard McCall, shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Colombia. It's that time of the week again, folks. This is me, your host, Richard McCall, here in Bogota, Colombia, 2,600 meters closer to the stars. And this is episode 393 of the Columbia Calling podcast. This week's very special guest is Joshua Collins, the freelance journalist. He's resident here in Bogota, originally from New York, but he goes all around the country as the job entails, reporting on the lesser reported stories, but no less important. Uh, this week, we talked to him about his adventures in Catatumbo, the coca growing area. That's, of course, coca, the base plant for the production of cocaine. So he was up there. We talked to him about the protests in Cali and we talked to him about several other things and a new project he's got coming up. So very exciting. Thank you so much to everybody who signed up this last week for the Columbia Calling subscription service, the Columbia News subscription service. Just $2 a month at the moment, 50 cents. An update that arrive directly to your WhatsApp or Telegram accounts reported by Emily Hart every Monday morning. So be sure to check that out. That's Columbia, that's patreon.com forward slash Columbia Calling. You can sign up there and there's all sorts of goodies if you decide to, well, sponsor us for a bit more money. Uh, thank you again to everybody. I'll be right uh, back after the news by Emily Hart and then we'll be talking to Joshua Collins, the freelance journalist here in Bogota. Thank you again. Bye bye. I'm Emily Hart, and these are your top stories from Colombia for the week of September 13th, 2021. Colombia has been declared the most dangerous country in the world for environmental defenders for the second year running. The report by human rights group Global Witness recorded 227 murders of environmental leaders in 2020, of which 65 were in Colombia. The group reports that the lack of implementation of the peace accords is a major contributing factor to the violence. In many areas, the control of paramilitary and criminal groups has increased since the agreement was signed with the FARC in 2016. Globally, murders of environmental and land defenders hit a record high last year. Indigenous communities suffered more than a third of the killings, despite accounting for only 5% of the world population. The second most dangerous country for environmental activists was Mexico, then the Philippines and Brazil, though per capita, Nicaragua, was the most deadly and is one of the fastest deteriorating environments. The controversy around Karen Abudinen, ICT minister, and a massive contract to connect rural schools to the internet came to a head this week. The Prosecutor General has now opened a case against Abudinen to investigate the process by which a contractor not only failed to comply with due process, but also received an advance of 70 billion pesos, which has now disappeared. After initially being supported by the President, the minister was asked to resign this week and complied. Meanwhile, Abudinen had been fighting with the Royal Spanish Academy on Twitter. The RAE, the Authority on the Spanish Language, documented new usages of a verb, abudinar or abudinear, meaning to rob or con. Abudinen demanded a retraction, and online usages of the new verb increased as a result of her protest. 
The Academy's observation of usage does not signal incorporation into the academic dictionary. In a more historical case of alleged corruption, the Rodriguez Orejuela brothers, former heads of the Cali cartel, published a letter addressed to former president Andres Pastrana. They accuse him of having received campaign finance from the Cali cartel. This came in response to Pastrana's intervention at the Truth Commission, in which he referred to the illegal financing of Ernesto Samper, another former president. And the renewed tax reform bill has now passed. The original version of the bill sparked months of national protest and unrest earlier this year, known as the Paro. The new renegotiated bill seeks to resolve economic issues caused by the pandemic through corporate tax, austerity measures and increased revenue collection. Much of this will go on social spending and job creation. While the Paro has come to an end in most places, roadblocks and clashes between ongoing protests and riot police the ESMAD continued in the city of Cali this week, amid allegations that the mayor's office is not complying with the agreements made with the protest movement in the wake of demonstrations. And a number of Colombia's top officials have been declared responsible for the failures and massive financial losses of the Hidroituango Dam, a huge hydroelectric project in Antioquia which has faced numerous structural disasters and repeatedly posed huge flood risks over the last three years. Among the 16 people and nine companies declared responsible is presidential hopeful Sergio Fajardo, former governor of Antioquia. Protests have broken out in Spain over the visit, the visit of President Iván Duque at the Madrid Book Fair. Colombia is the official guest country this year, but the ambassador admitted that writers who had been critical of the current government had been intentionally ignored for invitation. Meanwhile, one of Colombia's most influential writers, Antonio Caballero, died this week. He was a much-respected and widely-read columnist and critic of the government. He had worked in Colombia's biggest publications, from El Espectador and Semana, to new independent portal Los Danieles, as well as in London at the BBC and The Economist. He was also a part of the founding team of Alternativa, a 1970s anti-establishment magazine created with writers including Gabriel García Márquez. And coronavirus cases continue to fall in Colombia, with new daily cases at around 1,500 and nearly 50% of the country having received one dose of vaccine. Over 30% of the population are now fully vaccinated. It is estimated that around 90% of Colombians have already had COVID, according to the National Institute of Health. Just over half these cases are due to the Mu variant, recognised last week as a variant of concern by the WHO. However, the Delta variant's rising prevalence is likely to shape the future of the pandemic in Colombia. A fourth peak is predicted to arrive in October. Those were your key stories for the week. Thanks for listening. And we're back. This is Columbia Calling, segment three of episode 393. And our very good friend and a very popular journalist here in Columbia is our special guest this week. You'll know him. Joshua Collins. You will have read articles by him, uh, especially about the protests in Colombia. He's like the journalist who gets into the thick of things, doesn't uh, doesn't veer away from any risks to himself. So he was in Cali. He's been up in, I mean, he's been in the road protests in the south of Bogota. He's been all over the place. And he's been in Catatumbo, one of the key coca producing areas in Colombia. And so we're going to talk a little bit about everything and a new project that he's got coming up. So welcome back on the show, Joshua. 
Thank you so much. Has it really been 393 episodes? It's just bizarre. <laughs> but Excellent I, work. I feel since Emily Hart has come on board as a journalist who does our news reports, it's given the podcast a new direction and a new impetus. Uh, having someone serious uh, working on the podcast oh, you're means serious. I'm not that serious, but I, I, it just it drives me a little bit, and and that's been great for our Patreon campaign and so on. We've had people it's signing fantastic. up, you know, not enough to live on, but certainly enough to cover costs, and and that's yeah, a, yeah. a big deal, uh, especially at this moment in time for the those of us in the independent press yes of course <laughs> as you, you well know yes. <laughs> so i mean this is where we can start chatting about it because you get up and you get on a bus overnight and end up in the weirdest places and and i've been wanting to go up to norte santander uh, catatumbo for so long but every time I go up, you know, it's either it, it, the blockades are too violent or so on, or I, I just can't make it or something else. But you're, you were up there. You were up there writing articles pretty recently. Just tell us a bit about this border area where, I mean, only bad news comes out of Catatumbo. Tell us about that adventure. Yeah. Um, well, Catatumbo, as probably some of the listeners and you are definitely aware, is one of the four major conflict zones in Colombia. Um, perhaps Cauca might be the only one that is more dangerous or Nariño. I don't know. They're all kind of always competing for first place. But it's on the Venezuelan border north of Cucuta. It is one of the biggest coca producing regions in the world. Um, there's also a lot of conflict between the armed groups that control the region. So there's EPL, the FARC, ELN, and then the Paracos have a few, the right-wing self-defense, that the crime groups related from the old self-defense forces during the Civil War have a few strongholds up there as well. And they also control Caesar. So there's fighting all along the border between Caesar and Catatumbo, between the sort of right-wing Paracos and the left-wing rebel armed groups. And then the armed groups also fight among themselves within Norte de Santander for Coca territory, extortion territory. And that's all made more complicated by the fact that Catatumbo is also the most oil-rich region in all of Colombia. So there's a lot of conflict points that kind of all meet there in that region where there isn't a lot of state presence. And the trip was really interesting. I, I originally had pitched a story to cover vaccine distribution um, in Catatumbo, which is pretty much just not happening. Uh, but when I got up there, I, I had interviewed this, this social leader about six months ago for a piece. And I was like, well, I'm going to be passing through. I'm going to send Andre a message. And Andre was like, nah, you have to come out to Puerto Lajas and stay with me and my family. And they live in this coca-producing agricultural community called Puerto Lajas. And so I spent the week just kind of wandering around with coca farmers, the cocaleros, and the workers who come to the... There's a lot of migrant workers that come to work in the fields as well. And it was a super, super, super fascinating experience. Um, I've been wanting to do it for a while. I didn't expect to get access as good as I did. It was sort of just pure luck. That's amazing. So you were up there staying in the, in the coca cultivations, really? Yeah, and it's, it's wild. So, I, I mean, I passed through... Putumayo and Nariño, like other regions that do a lot of cocaine production, but the, the farms are more clandestine. They're like hidden up in the mountains. But in Catatumbo, there's so little state presence that, I mean, 
from these from the bus down these improvised dirt roads, you can just see hectares, thousands and thousands and thousands of hectares of coca. And I was taken aback on the bus at first. I was like, this coca, right? Because I mean, I'd, I'd seen it like once before in person in, in Nariño. But I had to ask the person next to me on the bus. I was like, all those plants are coca, right? I thought maybe I was mistaken about something. But no, it's it's done quite openly. And Puerto Lajas is the same. The entire community, all of them grow coca. And, and it stretches as far as the eye can see in any direction. Wow. It's, this is a, a, almost incredible to imagine. You're on the bus. Of course, I imagine you're the only Western, or let's say we're Western, North American on the bus as well. And you're going, uh, this is coca, this is coca. Or you came up with someone. Yeah. But also, um, and the laboratories are there too? Yeah, so that was something that was really interesting. Um, so to explain a little bit to the people who, who might not have looked into the issue, coca is the raw ingredient in cocaine. But what the farmers usually sell to the armed groups is a coca paste. It's like um, they, they, they saturate the alkaloids out of the plants and they're left with like this kind of granular goopy gray paste. So that is later refined at a real laboratory into cocaine, right? So there's kind of, it's like a three-step process. The farmers in Puerto Lajas make the paste, but apparently it's illegal um, according well, ELN is the government in that region, right? They have laws um, because there is no, there is no state government, and it's been that way since forever. Uh, so it, ELN is control of all the final refinement, right? It's illegal for the farmers to make the paste into actual cocaine, but they do refine the coca into the coca paste. What's interesting about that is that process requires a lot of gasoline to do. And these regions are super remote. So for example, even though Puerto Lajas is only, I don't remember the exact number, but I think it was a hundred kilometers from Cucuta. It was an 11 hour bus ride. So just to get illustrate like how bad those roads are, so there's no way for them to get gasoline. So they actually smuggle gasoline from Venezuela along the Maracaibo River, which runs to Maracaibo, Venezuela. They smuggled um, uh, raw crude. Mm. And the farmers refine their own raw crude to make this really terrible gasoline by, by burning the crude and then running it through homemade stills. And they have this like really black oily gasoline that they use to make the coca paste. It's all handled within the region, right? Or they steal crude from the pipelines or they buy it from um, people will bring trucks. You'll see trucks of, of barrels of gasoline just driving from Cucuta up into Catatumbo. So it's, it's like all, it, there's this entire black market economy that has developed there. And that was super fascinating to me. I'd never thought about it, but of course. And I was looking into some research for the article, and it turns out like something like 25% of the gasoline in Colombia is used to produce cocaine now. That's a huge amount. Yeah, it's a massive, a massive, massive, massive number. So I'm, I'm, you know, I've got questions coming from all angles at this moment. I mean, and I can understand this illicit economy. I can understand the, the let's say, the crude coming in from Maracaibo along the river. Is there any naval presence on this on this river, or do they just sort of turn a blind eye or get a cut? Or I mean, because that's for me is is we we hear about it, but what's going on? Um, well, outside of the border, I've never seen any sort of naval presence from any country on any of those. There's just, there's a whole network of rivers across that region, right? Mm -hmm. um, the Maracaibo River is the main one that runs into Venezuela. Um, I actually asked Andre about that. I was like, you know, how do they get the crude out? of venezuela like how do they get it past the, the gmb the national guard there 
And what he was like, I don't, I've never done it, but he's like, I assume they just pay them, right? Yeah. That's how it's always worked. <laughs> and on the Colombian side? I don't think they care. Yeah. There's just so little state presence. So yeah. in, 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 in all of Catatumbo, usually what you'll see is like a military base outside of the cities that are more than five or 600 people. Right. Like, and, and they don't really leave their base. They just kind of hang out there aside from the, the eradication efforts, which they occasionally do, uh, which honestly to me seem more for show than for anything else. There, there's just no, there's no state, there's no police, there's no health system. There's no transportation system. There's, schools are built by the communities. Roads are built by the communities. So yeah, there's just no, there's just no Colombian presence. Well, I think that was, was another takeaway yeah. for me is that like, I, I don't, after that trip, like I'm, I'm rather convinced that the Colombian government has no serious intentions of addressing that problem in Catatumbo at least. I think that Catatumbo is seen as a, as a perennial problem and that it's like the poison chalice of trying to get involved. Sure, they can send over some aircraft and, and bomb some supposed bases or send in the military to, I don't know, destroy a laboratory and it, it ticks some boxes. But I don't think that there's going to be the necessary socioeconomic investment in an area such as that to, to exactly. improve a situation. You talk of 100 kilometers, let's say, or 100 miles equal, you know, uh, from Cucuta to where you went, and it's 11 hours. There's no desire to open the region. Yeah, an 11 right. hour ride and no one you know for it's it's, it's unthinkable and then I, the other thing was bouncing around in my head when you talked about this sort of the, the show of uh, eradication did you see anything that had been eradicated did you see uh, the teams out there or, or I mean that was just something that again well I was yeah that was one of the issues that I was curious about when I was there um, and I spent a lot of time with I'm not going to say his last name but a cocoa farmer named Pipe who's rather young like 28 and uh, he'd been doing this since he was 14. And I was asking him about the eradication problem. I was like, aren't you worried about that? He's like, no. He's like, it happens so rarely. He's like, it happens, but it happens so rarely that nobody's really concerned about it. And it's if, if you lose one cycle in three years, you can produce a cycle of coke every three months, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because there's no seasons in Colombia. It's year round. Um, okay, well, that's, that's, that's a bummer for the farmer. But other than that, like, it's just going to make him burn down more jungle, plant more coca to make up for the lost season, right? So he was saying that it's, it's, it's just statistically not likely that it's going to happen to you. Mm -hmm. But one thing that he did mention to me that I found really interesting is that he was he's saying, you know, every once in a while the government will show up and they'll, they'll burn down someone's field. And they'll be like, that was an ELN gorilla. He's like, that's not an ELN gorilla. He's like, that guy lives in a place where ELN is the government and has to deal with them. And, you know, they impose taxes. They're sort of like de facto shadow government in the different regions are controlled by different groups. But the mm -hmm. group, I, the part I was in was controlled by ELN. And he was like, that, that's, that's super frustrating to me because he's like, I'm not a gorilla sympathizer. Like the gorillas killed my cousin when I was a kid. He's like, they're, but they're the government. He's like, I can't do anything about it. So that sort of cycle. The government loves to say like, oh, well, the, we, we found a, a coca lab, one of these, these places where they make paste, but it's really just a shelter where a farmer was making coca paste because that's what he has to do to survive in the region that he lives in, right? Yeah. So it's a, it's a really complex problem. And I don't want to take autonomy away from the community. Like They've made a decision to sort of embrace that for economic reasons that you know in some ways are understandable, but nonetheless, it's pretty demonstrable that yeah, coca agriculture attracts 
armed groups, which cause destabilization and violence. So I don't want to take all the autonomy away from the community, but I do understand the economic impetus. I do understand like their perspective. And it was really interesting to spend some time there. Mm. It's, it's peculiar. And so your, your friend, Pipe, or the guy that you met, uh, and you said he's been working in this since he's 14. I suppose he started as a raspachin, you know, the kids that pick the, the leaves off the trees. Yeah. So in, in that region, I'm not really sure uh, how it works in the region with the raspachinis, but in, in that region, it's all mostly Venezuelan migrant workers handle that work. Mm. Um, and it pays pretty badly. It pays like $15 a day. And it's like an eight hour backbreaking day. Uh, so that'd be like a, just a little bit more than the minimum wage in Colombia. Um, so Pipe is actually from a family that's from Catatumbo that had a farm. And when he was a really young kid, they used to grow yuca, bananas, uh, aguacates, and I don't remember the rest, squash. Mm-hmm. And, but they eventually decided in the early 2000s that they were going to start growing coca instead because the family was, they would grow this, this big crop and then they'd have to transport it 11 hours, pay for the transportation to Cucuta where they could sell it for a pittance, right? Yeah. Like competing with the entire region. But in Catatumbo, if they grow coca, then they get paid by the kilo for the paste and the buyers come to them. The price never changes and the market just keeps growing. So it was like an economic pressure that kind of, so his family converted into a coca farm when he was very young. So I imagine he was doing the same work as the Rappuccinos in the beginning, but now he sort of manages the property. It's, it's that, it's that thing again, it's the age old thing. If you can't get your produce to a road to sell it, then you're going to do what can be sold and at a good price. And of course, the coca paste, as you say, the the groups come to them, they take it away, the prices are fixed. So there's a regular income. So the bottom line on everything here is there's economic interest, not only of the families, not only of the you know the the, the gangs and so on. It's all at stake. Yeah, um, and I, I think that maybe it's good to point out a number that I heard when I was there. So. Um, a kilo of coca paste in Catatumbo sells for $2 about. It was around there, like 5,000, 6,000 pesos. That's incredible to me, right? So these, these farmers, the percentage of the profits that they're making from the drug trade are, are minuscule. Mm. So a, a gram of cocaine, for example, after it's diluted and broken down on the street, sells for about $200 in New York. So it's like these farmers... Are, are making a pittance of, of what this industry generates. Mm. I thought that was very interesting. Yeah. And yet, and yet it's an income as well, isn't it? It's just, right. it's, it's, it's just, it's, it doesn't bear thinking about uh, this. And when they, when they, you know, they extract the alkalines and, and so on out of the, the leaves, you know, they're using, I guess it's there's ammonia, gasoline, it's a really gross yeah, process. Sulfur, there's hydrochloric or sulfuric acid in there and so yes. on. Um, do they then make bricks out of the paste? Like as if they were making panela? They make these kind of balls. Oh. I was watching Pipe make them and he stores them in bags. And it, 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 I don't know the, the schedule, but periodically the buyers come through the region and buy all the coca paste that all the farmers have. And they go back to and, and, whatever it is that those guys do. I guess they yeah. smuggle cocaine, right? <laughs> and, and did they mention who the buyers were then? 
So in that region, it's ELN. ELN. They are the buyers. Right. They, are. they so, are the buyers. So they are, you know, they are fully and heavily involved in this industry as well. You know, when you hear, uh, let's say, Pablo Beltran talking about how they're not, we know they are. I mean, that you, yeah, saw, of course. you saw it with your own eyes. I mean, that's a different... Um, yeah, and then there's also... I mean, you're aware of this, but maybe your listeners aren't. Um, there's different fronts of ELN, and they don't all agree on all the same things. Yeah. For example, the front that, that is in charge... Uh, excuse me, there's traffic. Bogota. The front that is in... The front that is in charge of Katumbo happens to be a really socially conservative front. For example, it's illegal to be gay in Katumbo. Hmm. So you could face issues from the, the local guerrillas if they find out that you're a homosexual, which is just really strange to me, right? Another strange rule they have is people are not allowed to smoke marijuana. So you can you can you can grow cocaine, you can grow coca, but you can't you can't smoke marijuana. Um, I also saw one field of poppies when I was out there, which I which I found really interesting. Wow. I, it's something that you don't see a whole or I haven't seen a whole lot in Colombia. Mm. Also very open. Right? There it wasn't common. But it was, it was, I did see it at, at, at not in Puerto Lajas, but in one of the neighboring regions. This is because I have read that poppies, you know, are being grown. And then there is a production, I guess, poppies for, for heroin. There is a production, but it is minuscule. But it, I suppose it's only going to grow, especially if you've got an area like Catatumba with no state presence. I mean, it's, right. it's, it's a great return on your, on, on your investment. Yeah, I imagine so. Uh, how weird it's a so how big was the poppy field when you saw it um i don't know it's hard to estimate i'm also bad with hectares i'm used to acres uh being gringo mm. but um the size of a soccer field perhaps that's big enough football field yeah, yeah it's big enough wow and, and of course, I do have to ask because all of my all of my listeners will be, con, uh, you know, concerned. They say, but at no point was there any threat to your person. At no point did you feel at risk up there. So the family I was staying with is a really interesting family, the Silvas. And I was staying with Andre Silva. Andre Silva is he had left Catatumbo when he was eighteen to go to college in, I believe it was Medellin. I'm not hundred percent sure about where he went. And then he traveled around the world for a couple of years, and he's always had aspirations to be some sort of social leader or a politician. And he returned to Katatumbo about three years ago because his mother was alone and she was about to sell the farm. She, she didn't want to grow coca. Um, and, uh, the farm was failing. So he went back and what he does now is he works with these farmers communes. So because there's no government, the, all the farmers in the regions will form these sort of boards that make decisions about the community. They'll, they'll help each other with, um, harvests with plantings they'll make decisions resolve disputes within the community they 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 maintain the roads and so what andre does now is he's trying to advocate for more sustainable farming practices within the coca industry because well i mean there's a lot of destructive aspects of what's going on there like they'll use really nasty pesticides to go burn down jungle and then they'll mm. come clear crop it plant coca They'll work for a few seasons until they destroy the soil and then they'll do it again, right? So it's this like expanding process. So he's working with some of these farmer groups to get them to try to use less pesticides, um, to try to do crop rotations. He's like, look, I know you guys are going to grow coca, but if you also grow palm and yucca and squash and you rotate the plots, he's like, you can keep the same land for longer. And these are old agricultural processes, right? Mm. Um, so that's what he does. And his family is interesting. 
they have they raise chickens, they raise uh, pigs, they grow yucca squash, and they're one of the only food producing farms in the region. Now, what's interesting is that now when Pipe was young, his farm from his family was failing because they had to transport all the goods to Cucuta. But now because of the coca economy, all the food is imported to Puerto Lajas. The community no longer produces its own food. So Andres has found this sort of niche. He's like, well, I can sell the community all the food. Like it works for me. And in the meantime, what he does is he advocates for the way he looks at it. He's he's like, the coca problem will never go away. He's like, what we can do is I can try to help the community understand that if we're going to do this, it needs to be more sustainable, which I thought was a really interesting point of view. It is interesting. There's a few things there. Conversely, he makes an income because all other food is imported. Yeah. <laughs> and and then he's, you know, he's campaigning, let's say, on behalf of sustainably environmentally produced mm-hmm. coca <laughs> cultivations, which right. are not things that you put together, really. But I, I can understand because it's not going to go away, but you still need the land to produce. So I can understand right. that. That makes sense to me. Until, and there's another thing there. Is, I mean, you were up and around in this, in this area. This is, as you say, no state presence. Rivers, as you say, the network of rivers, uh, I think impenetrable countryside, very beautiful is what I've understood. Very beautiful. Uh, um, did you come across any other sort of uh, types of banditry, let's say, in the region? Because I imagine that the, the, the border is porous. Uh, between Venezuela and, and that part of Colombia. But did you find anything else while you were up there beyond, uh, the, let's say, the, the coca growing? I, I guess I kind of deflected your last story, your last question, which is related. Um, I was mentioning Andre because mm-hmm. he's well-known in the community. So when we arrived, he had already announced that, you know, two gringos with cameras are going to be walking around, guys. Like, don't, don't have a heart attack. So we felt... I mean, I wouldn't say welcomed by the community because there's a lot of distrust of outsiders, but, you know, no one was remotely threatening to us. And if, if there were a few people, you know, we were there for almost a week and the fourth or fifth day, people started to kind of open up a little bit. There was a little bit more trust. They realized that we weren't secretly DEA or something, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I never, I I never personally felt threatened, but Mm. I think it's because of our host and his, his efforts. Right. Um, On this trip, I really didn't see, any sort of banditry or crime whatsoever. In other trips to, to Norte de Santander and other parts, I've, I've seen some pretty wild stuff. Um, passed through Catumbo on bus about a year and a half ago and realized that I was actually on a bus full of Venezuelan migrants that were being smuggled by Paracos, and that was pretty horrifying. Mm. Um, but what I did hear is some interesting, an interesting rumor that uh, I'm still trying to confirm. So I... I, I, I preface this by saying it's a rumor um the tren de arauca has been arriving to the frontier that's a venezuelan gang de aragua sorry for over a year now and what i've heard is that one of the farc dissident groups had recently declared war they're like no this is our territory this is colombia like you guys are not welcome here so they're when I had arrived in Cucuta, I have a lot of friends. You met uh, mm-hmm. one of them, actually. That I have some underworld contacts in Cucuta and uh, having a couple of beers with those guys. And, and a lot of the coyotes that work smuggling people are leaving Cucuta because they've been working. So the coyotes are independent, right? They don't work for the Tren de Aragua or for FARC. They just work. Mm-hmm. And whoever controls the frontier 
they have to pay taxes to. And that's been various gangs. There's the Rastro Ojos two years ago, a Colombian Paraco group. Lately, it's been like a truce between ELN and the Tren de Aragua. But I guess FARC has had it. One of the FARC dissident groups, it's not FARC, that it gets confusing when we say FARC. Yeah. One of the dissident groups basically has said, no, this is our territory, and they've declared war on the Tren de Aragua. So a lot of the coyotes were leaving Cucuta. They're like, no, I have to go find other work. There's no way I'm going to stick around and be in the middle of this when, when they finally actually all draw their guns and go for it again. It happens maybe every six months or a year on the Venezuelan border there as people fight for territory. Disputed territories are way more dangerous than controlled territories. Mm. And of course, you've seen this up close and personal. You were there in Cucuta for a long time. I mean, you reported from there before anyone was reporting from there. So, I mean, well, you, Dylan you, beat me. Dylan Broder, you know him. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> and also, he set up that the, the soup kitchen, really, that we that we. Yeah, visited. he's a great journalist. Yeah, I mean, that yeah. was great. Uh, uh, um, we got articles published in the Globe and Mail and in the New Humanitarian about that trip. Was there any others that you got out? I think that was it. That was a good was trip. It. Though. it was good. Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, it's it's so it's it's so hard to to really envisage anything properly improving along that area, and you just sort of hope for a, I guess, like you're saying, hope for a truce. A con, you know, even if someone controls it, that there's some sort of truce so that you know, needless killing doesn't continue I, I don't know how and then i think about you you know you're, you're going up there to catatumbo and so on and, and, and like they say the, the coca cultivation is not going away and colombia what are the, the, the statistics this year are, are crazy i mean coca production is it is this technically right might be down but the the exportation of cocaine is way up is that is that right is that something i read which is it's just bizarre okay no so the, what the the unodc report said and it was backed up by the state department both agreed on this point um was that the amount of land being used for coca has slightly reduced in 2020 mm. compared to previous years but 2020 was a record year of production for cocaine mm. so there's the, the government likes to say we destroyed, I, I don't know the number, 80,000 hectares of coca. Look at us. We're doing a great job. But that doesn't seem to be having any sort of impact on production. Yeah. I mean, that, that's it. It's because the, the cocaine leaving Colombia is far more. And so, you know, you, you sort of say, so what, what, you know, what, what, what point for these efforts? I don't know. I mean, it's, it, it's, so, it, it's so complex. Um, where you were was all ELN, uh, so National Liberation Army controlled. Did you, I mean, had there been a power struggle there? Did, uh, did the family tell you about the EPL or other, other groups? Yeah, so um, there have been ongoing conflicts, especially between EPL and ELN in the region. But the region, the specific town that I was in has been controlled by ELN very solidly since the late 90s. Um, and I got a chance to talk to some people who were there when ELN arrived. And those are some really tragic stories mm. as well. I talked to um, a 70-year-old woman named Carmen Rojas Silva, who um, arrived in Catatumbo in the late 80s. So that was like when the region was being settled by Colombians, right? Um, it was sort of like wild jungle before that. Mm. And in the late 90s, as the civil war was increasing, there was a lot of people fleeing violence, both from armed groups and from the state. And a lot of them ended up in Catatumbo. Uh, they were there just, they could, they, could, they could start a farm and sort of do subsistence living, right? And it was better than the conflict zones. And the guerrillas arrived in the late 90s, uh, specifically in that region was ELN. 
and they were interested in coca production. Uh, they had just decided basically because for a long time, ELN was very uh, philosophically opposed to coca mm-hmm. production. They considered it imperialism, capitalism, what, you, what, what have you. But I, I guess they changed their minds at some point. And so when she was there, ELN arrived and her son had to flee because they, they were threatening to kill him. She witnessed a public execution of the local priest in the town square. Um, she was saying basically the, the guerrillas were trying to displace people again because they wanted to take the land. After a while, they, the, the government realized, I mean, excuse me, the ELN realized that they, they couldn't just terrorize the population. Everyone would leave. So they had to sort of come to some sort of understanding. Right. Mm. But there are still problems. Um, and, for example, when I was there, they were telling me about how there was Neil and Grilla who used to come drink at Puerto Lajas because he was really interested in one of the waitresses. Uh, and it was it was really tense for the community because they couldn't really say anything. But the guy was like really out of control, like, you know, sexually accosting her in public. And people were just like, you can't. So they went to his leaders and they're like, this guy can't can't be doing this here. It's bad for the community, not to mention this poor girl. And and the girl didn't like this response. So he went and shot the guy who told on him. Right. And. And so then ELN actually executed him publicly in front of the townspeople. So it's like, there's this weird kind of gray law that ELN imposes, right? They're like, mm. well, sorry, that guy's out of control. This is our apology to you. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a really dark story, it right? It is dark. It's, it, it's like yeah. they're weird. I've heard about uh, FARC and ELN like tribunals before. Right. Uh, but they do seem to be quite sort of varied and quite loose as well. It's, but this one... And of course, the ELN. Well, they need the community there to produce the product as well. So right. there has to be this sort of two-way street on it. Well, I, do, I well, I'm you know, uh, I'm reasonably jealous of your trip, <laughs> and uh, and of course uh, other trips that you've made, um, and and uh, maybe that can bring us to your Cali adventures because you were down there for some of the uh, demonstrations. Yeah, I went to Cali, let's see, I guess that'd be the end of May, early July, mm-hmm. right after the, so there was a big massacre on the 28th where the Cali police killed like 19 people in one day, not in one spot, all over the city. And I think two days later I went to Cali because I was, I was just, I didn't feel like there was a lot of foreign correspondents there at the time. Um, although they were starting to arrive when mm-hmm. I got there as well. And yeah, that was, that was very intense. Um, I'd, I'd been in the streets almost daily in Bogota for a month. And in the south and the north of the city, it was it was pretty violent a lot yeah. of times. Um, so I, but Cali was other other level. It was, yeah. I mean, in in so in in Siloe, for example, one of the it's like a working class neighborhood that was kind of an epicenter of the violence. Um, there was an interesting phenomenon that was going on there. So that neighborhood is sort of a fiefdom of gangs that all fight one another. They fight for micro drug trafficking, prostitution, uh, territory, but it's all, it's all real small kind of, Mm. I don't want to use the word petty because it's dangerous, but small potato stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and after the police entered Siloe and there were plenty of videos of that, we saw them when the protests were starting and, and it was incredibly violent, the police response, they were, they were shooting up the community, right? Live bullets. Um, so that united all of the gangs against the police. They're like, no, the police can't come into Siloe. Um, and so one of the darker elements of what was going on in Siloe is that at night there was gunfire back, you know, uh, 
these these small time gangsters shooting at police who were daring to come into Silway. And it almost I mean, I mean, I, I want to frame this carefully for your listeners, because I don't want people to think that like protesters were, were carrying guns down to the protests. It was an effect of the protests, but I wouldn't say that those gangsters represented the protesters, Mm -hmm. but it was still something extremely complicated and dangerous for the community because of course the police were already behaving in a horrible manner. And when they started to encounter that sort of resistance, it just, it just doubled their draconian response. Mm -hmm. And so Silhouette ended up suffering a lot because of, of that dynamic. And that was really interesting and tragic. I kind of get the idea and that the police previously steered clear of Siloe because of exactly. what you were saying. And this was their excuse to go in and try and raise it to the ground a bit. Uh, and of course, then receiving return fire, again, as you said, doubled their draconian efforts. And But, you know, it was obviously a result of the protests, but this wasn't... This was going on in Silhouette and I guess other, let's say, more uh, marginalized districts. But down in, 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 let's say, regular Cali, where the protests were, or Northern Cali, where the, uh, the Statue de Resistencia, it was, it was pretty, it was bad as well, right? Yeah, there, was, there were multiple instances. So in Puerto Resistencia was a uh, community that had driven the police out um, after one of the initial responses so they actually burnt down the kai, the little mini piercing there, and turned it into a library. Um, so the, the police didn't have a uniformed presence in in that community for almost three months, two and a half months, I believe, until they finally took it back. Uh, they were sending undercovers in, of course, um, but it was effectively functioning without without police control for a long time, and the police didn't like that at all. And and there were some problems from that as well. There's some looting and stuff like that. But I think generally the the community was like, well, we'd rather police our own than have these guys to continue to police us. Which that was sort of the, the thought of the community at the time. But yeah, things got really dramatic there as well. There were a lot of confrontations between protesters and mm-hmm. police and a fair amount of deaths as well. Also in Ciudad Jardín, and that's a very wealthy neighborhood that is right on the border with the only public university in all of Cali, mm-hmm. which had a very active social presence during the strikes and also about mm, 10 blocks away was a very marginalized community. So there was this sort of alliance between a lot of the students at Univage and these marginalized communities. And that's where a lot of the blockades that you read about were set up. So there was, I don't even know, maybe a hundred square blocks that were just not passable to cars that were manned barricades by the protesters during most of the strikes. And that generated a lot of controversy especially be because the neighborhood affected was so wealthy. They had a lot of, they had a lot of political allies. They had a lot of political capital. They had the ability to sort of amplify their voice. And so that created a lot of tension in that community. And that was actually where we discovered on this most recent trip that one of, so to back up just a moment, there was a point a few weeks into the protests where Cali had arrested so many people that they ran out of places to put them. There was no room in the jail for all the protesters so the council passed an emergency measure to authorize the temporary use of improvised sites to detain protesters, which whether that's legal or not is being debated right now um, under the Colombian constitution. I don't have the answer. I'm not a lawyer, but what 
also happens that was definitely not specifically authorized by that decree is that there were unauthorized improvised sites. And one of those was in Ciudad Jardín. And on this most recent trip to Cali with a really great Colombian journalist, Daniela Diaz, uh, we had the opportunity to talk to some people who were actually tortured and forced to make confessions about crimes they didn't commit by the police while we were in Cali. And that was all happening at the end of May. Mm. And there were rumors of that when I was there, but no one had proof. Tests, witnesses were scared to come forward. The story has kind of come out a bit since then. And I think that, you know, us being lucky enough that these people were willing to talk on the record helped mm. visibilize that a little bit. It's difficult to overstate how, how many human rights violations the, the Columbian government committed during those three months of strikes. It's worth reading that UNICH report, or it's worth reading the, the latest Human Rights Watch reports. They're dark. Yeah. And a lot of that stuff didn't get, I mean, sure, the deaths made international headlines, but now that the strike has kind of moved on, some of more disturbing elements are emerging and, you know, international press attention has moved on too. And I get it. I'm not, I'm not complaining. The world mm. is a big place and we all have to kind of compete for attention and there's a lot going on right now, <laughs> yes. but, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of, of really impactful dark stories that are still coming out from that period. And you you did a piece, it was for Vice, wasn't it? You, you actually revealed some of this, uh, let's say, uh, unauthorized detentions and torture. Yeah, we, we had um, testimony from, recorded testimony from four, four witnesses that were willing to go on the record with their names. They're incredibly brave people. Mm. Uh, but we also talked to a whole lot of people who wouldn't go on record. Um, so I have zero doubt that this was happening. Yeah. We, we talked with human rights lawyers. We talked with um, human rights workers who were there, who were trying to locate. One of the impactful moments for me is, as I was talking. So at, at most Colombian protests, you see these guys in blue jackets, right? And yes. they're, they're, they're human rights workers. And what they're doing is they're observing. And if people are detained, their job is to locate those people afterwards. So, I talked with the guy who had been spent three months doing that in Cali and, and he was saying that the end of May was chaos. They had like 600 names on their list of people who were, who were missing. Not all of them turned out to be missing. Some were reported incorrectly or some would show up later, but he, he was saying we didn't sleep. May 28th was like one of the most violent, big, the big days that were the most violent. He was like, we didn't sleep for four days. He was like, all of us, we were visiting because there was all these new unofficial um, authorized, they were authorized, um, but unofficial sites that these guys were having to visit to try and locate people who had been arrested. And the apparently the paperwork on the part of the police was very lax. Like half the people who were arrested were never even processed. There's no electronic record of them being arrested. And that's when those guys started to realize that there were more sites than they had on their list. They're like, no, we have a few hundred people on our list that we've been physically to every site on, on the authorized list from, from the city governments. And there are still people jailed by the police that we can't find. So there are people that were being, I mean, that, that's, I, I want to choose my terms carefully because I don't want to get sued for being on your podcast, but uh, <laughs> they were being held at the very least. I think it's fair to say they were being held illegally outside of the Colombian legal system. Mm -hmm. And of course that just, that covers their tracks at the end. There's no, there's no paper trail. There's no, as you say, electronic trail. Right. Uh, and we know about the, the supermarket being used, uh, or allegedly used. If I could, put, if I put that there, allegedly used. <laughs> but um, I mean, it's it's just. I think there's, isn't it? Today, as we talk, there are still sixty people 
unaccounted for? Is that in Bogota or nationwide after the strikes? I don't recall, but... That's uh, nationwide, yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, if this was happening in Cali, and Cali was the, the hotspot, it was happening in Bogota too, presumably. I'm almost certain. Yeah. I'm almost certain. Yeah. So, I mean, I saw with my own eyes that they were using the Puerto de las Americas as an improvised detention center in Bogota. So yeah. that was one of the concentration points. And eventually police just took over the station in an attempt to keep protesters out. And they were using it as sort of like a forward operating base. But I saw dozens of protesters being detained and taken into that center. And there's no record of that happening. No. Scary stuff. And I think that there's a, there's a sinister element that continues because the police, let's say, you know, they got away with it. Sure. Uh, and, and so therefore they feel, you know, somewhat justified. And then you get the president out again, visiting the small command points dressed as a policeman. Uh, it, it's, it's not the message. <laughs> it's the message to them. And the, and the Ministry of Defense, but to the regular people, as as we are recording one year since the so the anniversary of the kind of, uh, I would say, almost a mass killing in Bogota. It was like 16 people at the hands right. of the police. I mean, they say 11, don't they? But then there were others too. Yeah, I think uh, the police admitted 11, but um, some human rights groups said the number could be as high as 19. There's always, there's always dis- discrepancy there, yeah. Oh, wow. Well, we need people like you, uh, you know, to still keep reporting on these things, still keep hammering away to the international media to get those pieces out there. And so keep, please keep doing it, but stay safe. Now, before we finish, because we're coming to the end and we, I know we could talk for hours, you've got a new project with other journalists, uh, Pirate Wire Services. Tell us quickly about Pirate Wire Services. Yeah, real quick. It was fun. So um, about... I believe it was the, the four-month anniversary of the protests. We A lot of local journalists that I had been meeting through my coverage here were really frustrated with, with local coverage of the protests. So we all kind of banded together for one day. None of us got paid. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea was to have you know, 15, 16 journalists in various parts of the country that were all going to present sort of man-on-the-street Un, un, unfiltered views of the protests in an attempt to sort of counter this narrative that often catches on here in Colombia, pushed by Caracol and RCM. And it was really cool and it was great. and It was a success. Um, so now a month or two later, I'm circling back around to the idea and I thought, well, that was really cool. I wonder if we can make that semi-permanent. So now we're trying to start this initiative called Pirate Wire Services. And for now we exist on Substack but we're looking for ways to expand that presence. And the idea is I I want to take this to to Latin America more broadly. So now I've got a friend in Ecuador who's interested in contributing. I've got a friend in El Salvador, Buenos Aires. Of course, I'll be talking about Colombia here. Um, Looking for a way to present more the face of indie journalism outside of the filter Mm -hmm. that comes along with a lot of major media and I work for major media and, and there are huge advantages to that. And there's a lot of organizations that I respect, but there's also some stories that I just can't, I can't get printed as a freelancer. And some of them are really great. And the idea of this is to unite a bunch of freelancers who all have some stories, all have things that were too local, too strange, or, or just not sellable, but they're still really great narratives and try to start producing that content. Mm, yeah well we all we all have stuff spiked <laughs> right mm. we all have stuff <laughs> not taken and all have pictures not taken so so it's on Substack, but you've got a website you're going to have a monthly podcast and articles out there and and people can sign up for different levels you know paid levels and and free levels and newsletters right. and so on 
And the idea is that at least half of the content will always be free because the, the main goal of, of the project is to visualize these stories that we, we feel are important that we, we can't get into major media markets. Cool. Um, as, as you well know, though, <laughs> any kind of journalism, especially investigative journalism, takes a lot of time and resources. And so the goal would be to get our costs covered. Yeah. I know and that. continue moving forward, right? Well, well, I wish you all the best with that, and of course, I'll be following it. I cannot pay for it at the moment, I'm afraid. Yeah, um, I get hopefully, you. hopefully, <laughs> at some point in the future, when everything returns to <laughs> some sort of uh, normal uh, and cash flow is not a problem, I'd be more than happy to support it. So, where can people sign up? Uh, the easiest is just to find us on Substack Pirate Substack. Wire Services. All the information is there. You can get to all the websites and excellent our Twitters. Yeah, uh, I will. I will put that all up on the Facebook page and on Twitter and so on, so people know it. But of course, I mean, Ed, you know, you have hundreds of thousands of followers. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you're going to have problems. Um, but listen, thank you so much for this. Thank you for so much for sharing some of these these in, you know uh, your uh, journalism ad adventures and the risks that you have taken to get the story out there. This is no small feat to get out to Catatumbo and, 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 and those towns in the coca growing regions. It's no small feat to have gained access to these areas in Cali because a lot of the mainstream press were not allowed in, I know. Mm -hmm. um, so you've reported on it and, uh, and, uh, and you are here to tell the story, which is the most important thing. Um, so again, Joshua, thank you. At some point in the future, we'll we'll collaborate again on another story. I can't wait. And yeah, thanks for having me on again. I'm a huge fan of the show, as always. Thank you. Thank one of the you. first podcasts I started listening to when I came to Columbia in 2017. There you go. That's the, what I want to hear. That's what I want to hear from everyone. Thank you, uh, Joshua, for your time. Best of luck with all the next um, projects with the Pirate Wire services and, of course, the articles that you'll be pitching. I know you pitch daily <laughs> because yeah, that's the life almost. of a that's the life right, of right. a freelancer good luck with everything and as always please stay safe all right thanks richard you're most welcome we've been talking to freelance journalist joshua collins uh check out his website it's uh muros invisibles or invisibles muros joshua muros invisibles muros invisibles.com so good articles up there and of course check out pirate wire services and this has been episode 393 of the columbia calling podcast i know you've enjoyed it i've got some other great guests lined up and thank you to all of you out there who've signed up for the well on our patreon campaign one dollars two dollars five dollars uh thank you thank you for that and supporting emily hart on the newscast so uh that's been a great pick up in the last uh, couple of weeks so that's me signing off for this week thank you all thank you to joshua again and remember please share the word about the podcast and you know throw a couple of dollars at us if you can that's me bye-bye yeah.